You're listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author Sarah Box, where you get the inside scoop on the steps action takers and decision makers take to align their purpose to their principles and achieve their goals in business and life. We focus on the mantra, no labels, no limits, no excuses. Each week, you'll hear from remarkable guests who have overcome challenges and obstacles to succeed in the face of adversity. By listening to their stories, you'll get practical tips, tools, and resources you can implement today to bust through your own internalized prisons of worry and doubt. And now, without further ado, please welcome your commanding coach with plenty of chutzpah and heart, Sarah Box. Hey there, welcome back to another five-year celebration compilation. This week, we're sharing clips from four interviews from March 2020 as we were entering two full years of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. Now, in this particular episode, you're going to hear from four amazing women. The first is Connie Benjamin, who is the concierge executive assistant, marketing expert, best-selling author, and management consultant. When Connie and I spoke in 2020, she had just published a book, My Fire Within. And in this clip, I asked Connie how we can reset our minds to unseat self-doubt and get in the right state of mind to live fully. Then we shift gears and talk with Terry Johnson from Personal Best Partners. Terry shares what happens when we dial in too much on our strengths at the expense of ourselves and our relationships and how collaboration can blossom when we link independence and interdependence for a purpose beyond a single individual. Then we shift gears yet again and talk with Cher Downing. Cher is the CEO of EdTech and she has over 30 years in higher education and corporate education. Cher brings that C-suite leadership and her online learning expertise and experience in the EdTech industry into our conversation. As I ask her how her FBI training learning about the law and technology influences her thinking. And then we wrap it up with Melissa Haveman, who is a team effectiveness and creative professional leader coach, author, content specialist, and an accredited facilitator for the five behaviors of cohesive teams. Melissa and I talk about the strategic ways to use doubt to overcome fear, especially fear encountered in our creative pursuits. So listen in. I'm sure you'll enjoy these interviews as I did re-listening to them. And if so, please reach out to us or to the individual guests and let them know that you listened and that you benefited. Fears and how do we overcome self-doubt? And in my book, I talk about that a lot because I believe that one of the biggest things holding women back to living our purpose is is fighting against that self-doubt, fighting against that, that fear and, that, and, and guilt and so many things. It's all mindset. And if we can know how to set ourselves our mindset free to step into who we're really meant to be, that's when, man, that's when we can do anything. So do you reset your mind daily, hourly, annually? Like how often do you go, whoops, time to get my mind in check here and get in the right state? All of it. All of it. Um, I definitely have a morning ritual that I do. And, and something that um, I learned at that event, it's called the pillars of state. And so there's different ways that we can change our mindset. 
And first I need to say mindset really is everything. Mindset, there's so much, it's, it's been very interesting writing the book because I've, I've got a chance to delve into other books and studies supporting that mindset is everything, that how we think actually impacts our physical body and, and it impacts what, how happy we are and how connected we are with the people around us. And so mindset really is everything. And that's so exciting because that's in our control. So many things are not in our control. That's in our control. So one thing that I do, because I am so not perfect and I need all the help I can get, is that I have a morning ritual that I do every single day. I do not mess around this stuff because I need all the help I can get. And it's this ritual that I do around making sure my body is, you know, and is as healthy as it can possibly be asking myself questions so that I can, I can change my focus to focus on what I really want to focus on and be in a place of gratitude and having a good mindset, because I don't know about you, but first thing in the morning, that's not my go-to. Sometimes that's not my go-to. I need help to get there and nutrition as well. And doing those things, oh my gosh, is incredible. And if you want, I can dive into some of the specifics around how I do that. I think that would be great because I do know, and I love when you say that it's not necessarily how you wake up every day, but to recognize that I, you know, it is our choice, Mm -hmm. you know, and I can be in the same place. Like I can wake up, I'm thinking, what was I dreaming about last night? Because my mind's already going a mile a minute about what has to get done. And I'm thinking, sit back, sister. That stuff's not important. Let it go. But that has taken a long time to be able to go, okay, let's get set for the day and who you want to be. And it's interesting that you say gratitude is a big part of that for you because it can so quickly change how how we're thinking and interacting with ourselves and with others. So yes, please share some about your the details of how you go about that. Okay, awesome. I love that you point out gratitude. Gratitude really is it's incredible how the brain works that if we can if we can redirect our brain, we can redirect our experience and and so this stuff is so powerful. So one thing that I do that um, has helped me to do this consistently, because I don't know about you, but I can sometimes start on a routine and I think I am going to be the best this year at exercising every day, eating nutritious. I'm going to be rocking every aspect of my life. And then a couple of weeks down the road, you know, the chaos of life starts slamming me down and it gets hard to actually implement. So I can relate if you can, if any of your listeners feel like Connie Benjamin, how do I actually do this consistently? First of all, I can relate. And second of all, I have a tool for you that you're going to absolutely love. And that's going to help you to take care of yourself physically, emotionally, mentally, every single day consistently. And I I think that's important, especially as women, because we often put ourselves last. And so we need to learn to put ourselves first so that we can be who we want to be and serve, do what we want to do. So this is what I do. It's something called block time and block time has changed my life. It's how I wrote my book. It's how I exercise every morning. It's how I do everything, in, including connect with my partner and my kids. So block time is basically taking a set time that we're going to do something. So let's say, and a specific goal. So for me, let's say I want to exercise for half an hour every morning. So I would say the specific thing I'm going to do every day is I'm going to exercise every morning. 
And I, and I set a time for it. I'm going to exercise at 6.30 every morning. Now, I don't exercise necessarily on the weekend at 6.30, but during the week, that's what I do. Now, a lot of people say that, right? And how often do we stay with it? It's not often. It's because we're missing often in the personal development world, we're missing one key component. And oh my gosh, when I started implementing this, I exercise no matter what rain, shine, not feeling good. It is amazing. So what is missing is having a motivator. So the problem with goal setting often is that we have something we want to do, but the results are so far out there. You know, it's hard. We want to exercise, but staying in bed right now seems a lot more of a better choice. We want to eat right, but the chocolate cake in front of me is immediate and it looks way more delicious than the plate of salad. And so we have to push the immediacy of um, so that we make the choices for our long term goals. And that's how mo- putting a motivator to it makes it so we do it. So an example is, I exercise every morning at around 6.30 in the morning. And if I do it, then I can check my email. And if I don't do it, no email, sister. And (laughs) that's something that has worked well for me. A strength can be dialed up too high. And here's here's an example that I have seen so far. Um, One of the ones that I, I love to see if there's a project that you really want someone to take ownership for is responsibility. If somebody has a strength of responsibility, I know it's gonna get done. I don't have to follow up with them. I know because I've seen that strength in play enough times that it will get, they'll, they'll accomplish it. But I also know that there's a risk that responsibility can be dialed up too high. And when it's dialed up too high, people can take on too many things and have a hard time saying, no, my plate is full or not now. My plate is full. Come back to me in six weeks or come back to me whenever. So one of the things that when we're working with teams and individuals, we teach them how to really look at what's happening. Because according to Gallup, two-thirds of all weakness is an overuse or an underuse of a strength. When we overuse our strengths, um, what are or are there telltale things? And, you know, in the absence of someone saying, hey, Terry, hey, Sarah, um, this feels like maybe it's an overuse. How would we recognize that in ourselves? Well, I think anytime you're, you're butting heads with other people, something is off a little bit. So somebody may have a strength dialed up. So in the example we used earlier, where Joe was on his feet, ready to go, activate, ready to take action, it could be that Joe's activator strength is dialed too high. And, and in, in that case, you can just ask them, you know, can you hold on for five more minutes until we get all the steps out and then you're, you're good to go. So anytime there are, there's conflict, take a step back and and look at what might be at play here. And there's, you know, there's some wonderful phrases, Sarah, that I like to use with people about um, how they're experiencing whatever it is that's happening. And you can look at somebody and I, I can say, Sarah, I know that you have 
strategic, very high in your strengths. Tell me how this idea that we're presenting looks through your eyes. What are you seeing? What do you see that's missing? And what's really valuable about that is a lot of times on a team, there's, there's short-sightedness on the decision-making, you know, because if one person's making a decision, they only have their point of view to draw from. I kind of believe that this whole uh, strengths understanding where none of us has all 34, right? Nobody has everything. And I believe that there is a creative designer out there, call it God, call it whatever you want to call it, that designed it that way so that we would partner with each other. And, and we could pull people together and say, you know what, I'm really good at the strategy piece, but I am not so great at the execution piece. So I need a partner, somebody that's really good at execution to come and hang with me or to, to talk to me a couple of times a week and check in about how many steps have I taken? Am I there yet? Am, what else do I need to, to pay attention to? So collaboration is one of the most exciting things about strengths that I, that I love. I love that piece of it. Well, let's dive into collaboration a little bit more. Um, so folks who live in the nonprofit sector or who get their funding through grants and foundation, you know, a number of things, that is actually one of the conversations over the past decade plus, right? People who are investing, they want to know that you're collaborating, that they're not just funding you in a silo, someone else next to you and doing duplicative work. So when, let's just say now we've got five or six organizations working on a collaborative um, project okay. and you've got the leaders of the organizations in the room. This I'm, this I'm trying to really think about how to roll this up and get people thinking broader. Because I think what you're talking about here is so powerful in looking at strengths, right? So we can look at um, kind of those objective measures of an organization's strengths, like financing, staff, those things. But it, this ability to step back and recognize and lift up other people's strengths so that together you get a better result um, brings to me the question two questions one is would you use that in a group that is forming right so they may be like i'm describing this pod a small pod that represents an extended group of people so they are the leaders um, would you have them do something like strengths finders and personality wise to see where that would be, where that could be an impediment or a bonus to the relationship? You know, if I was bringing groups together like that, like especially when you said they might come from different organizations, I might do something that shows an interdependence model, a collaboration model. And if you can just imagine a diamond, and on the left side of the diamond, it's um, somebody who's at dependence, somebody who's waiting, they're not taking action, they're just kind of passive, they're waiting, waiting, waiting. So that's, nothing's gonna get done when somebody's at that. We, and we call those bottom three points of that diamond, um, the toxic triangle. 
if you if you go to the other side and you've got somebody that's tired of the waiting and they just think okay i'm just going to do this once i'm just going to operate independently i'm just going to handle it it feels really good for a minute or two but then you've left your team behind you've left your collaborators behind and you're serving you but it's not serving the whole very well and then at the bottom of that toxic triangle you've got codependence which is kind of transactional it's like um, the meeting after the meeting where you complain about whatever was said or whatever decisions were made and you feel a little bit better because you've joined somebody in there complaining but that's not really serving the whole either and so then at the top of that diamond you've got interdependence and at interdependence, I serve us so we can serve others. So it has that, that sense of deeper purpose at the apex. And that's the place where you want to reside with your strengths and with each other as, as an intact team and when you're collaborating with the community at large. I mean, I'm interested in how your time at the FBI Academy may have shaped how you approach things or filter things, if it had any impact at all. So I've had a very, what I term, interesting and luxurious career. I came into online learning in the early 90s, and that's when it really started. Sadly, I can say that I'm old enough to have been on 1.0 for all of the softwares and big companies that are out there now. I've actually outlived some of them who have been merged or you know, acquired by somebody. But one of the things that I learned early on was we didn't know what we didn't know. And so we could try and fail. And it was okay. Normally, you don't get allowed failure. We're a society that expects great things and we expect always success. And nobody knew anything about online learning. So failure still meant we were doing something. We were still trying something. One of my colleagues that we were the NASA of learning. We didn't know what we didn't know with the space program. And so as long as we were doing something in it, everyone was excited. So, you know, fast forward and uh, I got the opportunity to go through the FBI Citizens Academy, which really teaches you not only about what the FBI does and their purpose, but it also exposes you to a little bit of how their training goes. And so you start to really understand looking at things a little bit differently. You start to understand where the role the media plays versus the reality of, of what the you know information that comes in. You start to understand how they look at the world globally long before the rest of us were looking at it globally and how one thing can impact something else. Where's the domino effect that as a citizen, you don't always see that. They're behind the scenes doing things. And so when you see that final outcome on TV, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, they've known about these things for a long time and they've been following things and tracing things. But there's also the technology side, which is the things that they've done for years, they've always been a step ahead. And so that technology has fit into how they train their own people and what they needed to know and how they needed to react. And so all of those things really started to form into to when you're teaching and when you're training people, there's a, a normalcy in how we deliver material, but we're not considering our audience. If you talk to a behavioral analyst in the FBI, which many people see kind of a, a smidgen of it on TV shows now, but they understand that depending upon how you answer, I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit. I'm going to shift the focus. I'm going to, I'm going to get you to respond to what you're not even thinking about 
responding to? Well, that's what we do in teaching. If we're good, we're going to get you excited and interested in the subject matter. If we're training you, we're going to get you excited about the product that we're or the widget that we're using in our company. We're going to get you to move forward and take that out in a positive aspect. So it really kind of tied together. The other thing that I did was I did a postdoctoral master's in uh, legal studies. And that tied so nicely together with the Citizens Academy because I learned the law and I understood suddenly how to read a newspaper differently, how to understand what I term a surface level distinction of things that are going on, whether it's crime, again, in the technology field, spamming, all of these things, hacking that's come on, all of that really came together with starting to understand how the legal aspect of it is and how the FBI deals with those issues. And so all of that, I think, really made me understand more so the protection and the security that we had to do for our people as much as training them. We have someone in our online area. We have a responsibility to take care of them when they're in that course, not just for their learning aspect, but also for their social aspect and also that they're not being taken advantage of from an outside entity. And so that all of that has wrapped together so nicely in my career, but also the world has caught up now and we see security issues and data breaches and such. And it really just makes you think more about what it is that you have to do to protect your clients, to protect your customers, to protect your students. Has that process or that thinking approach made you more forward thinking in general? So really thinking about what you haven't even had to deal with yet, but what might be coming? Absolutely. I'm always someone who is looking out forward because technology grows so very quickly. And the ed tech space has gone from zero to 100 plus in a very short time. And when you couple that with, we used to have a very uh, segmented area. There were those who had technology and those who didn't. We had business technology and we had personal technology. You know, if you think back to the days of you bought personal software and you bought business software, and all of that is is becoming gray now. Now you're just buying something, it's available to everyone. Software that used to only be used to someone in a specific industry is now available to everyone. So with that crossing of access becomes responsibility and security issues. So often in society, we're we're kind of, we the message that we're given is we just need to be confident. And and yet doubt is something that's good for us at times. Not always, but there are certainly advantages to using it strategically. And so that's sort of the, the birth of where the course came from is this really just moment in my head where I was just like, oh, you just don't get this. And, and then I was like, well, if I'm having this experience, other creatives are having it too. And the more that I talked to other creatives, that was true. So talk a little bit more about how to use doubt strategically versus using it as procrastination. Yeah. So I think that we give doubt a couple of different names. So in writing, there, there's this really interesting meme out there where, where it talks about the creative journey. And it starts out with, oh, this is awesome. and And then it goes down to, okay, this has some problems. Oh, this isn't very good. I'm not very good. Oh, this might be fixable. This is awesome. And so it really, it was that point at which that it's really number two on that, the, well, this has some problems and this is 
not very good. And those are really doubt. I mean, it's really that questioning process of, can I make this better? Is this, you know, is there greater potential here? I can see that it's not very good. Um, how do I make it better? And, and I think we do that in editing and things like that. But so often I find that once we get to that point, and I've done it so many times too, where you get to that point and it's just that straight drop into, I'm not very good. I can't do this. Um, and so it, it's trying to accept that those first parts are going to hurt a little bit, but that if you use them, you're going to wind up with a better piece of writing or a better book or a better creative project. But then it's learning how to kind of stop it before it gets to the, oh, I'm bad stage. So can you give a couple examples of how I might do that? You're actually bringing back to me many of the stages I was in when I wrote, right? And it's like, okay, I'm good. I'm done. I'm not going to send this in. No. Um, And I can't, I mean, I clearly have blocked out that because I'm going, yeah, I can't remember. So talk a little bit about the, is that an internal practice that we go through to, to challenge that? Or what are some of the tips for folks? Because it it may apply to writing. It may apply to Mm -hmm. trying something different. Yeah. So I think for me, uh, it is all about questioning. If you can, it's asking questions about whatever you're doing. So and kind of taking stock is, you know, can I make this better? Is there an idea that would work better here? Um, if I'm writing, it's, does this organization make sense? Does this, you know, would this work better there? What if I switched it over here? And, and learning to, to you and ask, use and ask those questions um, in ways that let you see the project in different ways and, and play around with it a little bit and then figure out how it best fits. So sort of like putting a puzzle together a little bit. And then learning that when it starts to shift to the I language, you're often in a slipping into that self-doubt. So if it starts to become, you know, the, oh, I can't do this. I'm not a good writer. I, you know, I, I'm not a writer because I don't write every day or anything like that. Then, then it's bumping it back up and, and shifting into um, using some of the strategies to get you back into creative doubt. So one way for me then, or for anybody, to to check where they are in that process is like how I'm even framing my questions, yep. right? Yep. The one I noticed about when you ask those questions too is they're very objective, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Is this, does this outline flow? Is the content make sense? Could yeah. it be better this way, right? Those are things you could either look mm-hmm. at yourself or if you're stuck, ask someone to say, do you have suggestions, right? Because if I say to you, Melissa, do you think I'm a writer? That's subjective. Yeah. Right. So there's no good answer to that. Right. It's like, do I look good in this outfit? (laughs) But I'm I'm joking a little bit, but really the choice of words we ask our questions with reflect for me, where's my headspace in? Yeah. Yeah. You know, am I looking for encouragement mm-hmm. or really some help? You know, yep. so so now let's just say I've kept going on on my writing project. Where's the you know the piece of actually finishing it? How do we get yeah. over that piece instead of saying yeah. oh later? Right. Yeah. That you know, it's funny because we if you talk to writers, we'll talk a lot about procrastination. We'll talk a lot about um, writer's block and and all of those things that stop you and stall you and keep you from finishing. 
And, and a lot of it, once you get down to it, is doubt. It's that I, I don't know if I can do this. And there's the fear of doing it, the fear of failure. Um, and creative work is at its core. You have to risk rejection if you're going to create anything, because anything that we create in that artistic sphere is always subjective. And so someone's always going to love it and someone's always going to hate it. And so anytime you put something out there, you're always going to be risking rejection. And so that's a really hard thing for a lot of people to, to kind of get over. So, yeah, I mean, in the course, we talk about different strategies. Once you know you're in that spark, spot where you're starting to stall and, and you want to stop and it's because it's doubt or it's fear and, and then, you know, there are a whole bunch of strategies and it's really about, um, in typical coaching fashion, figuring out which strategies work for you. So I've included some that don't work for me at all. Some people do a lot of journaling, for example, and, and we'll do write in journal in third person. And, and that kind of helps them bump over that doubt, something I can't do. I can't stick with it, but I use my character strengths a lot. Um, humor is a great one for me. I'm always, you know, pulling that one out if something goes wrong. I'm like, oh, laugh about it and move on type of thing. Or, um, you know, just kind of pushing yourself to, to do that small action, that first step, just one thing that moves you forward. And then, you know, typically you're already on that road. Um, once you take that first step, you kind of keep moving. You've been listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author, change agent, and strategic vision coach, Sarah Box. You can grab the show notes and find out how to work with Sarah at sarahbox.com forward slash no labels, no limits podcast. We'd love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So please remember to rate, leave a five-star review and share the podcast with someone you think would get value from this conversation. Until next time, keep taking those daily action steps to align your purpose to your principles and achieve your goals in business and life.